Welcome to Healthcare Upside Down with your host, Dr. Nick Vanterhaven, and brought to you by ECG Management Consultants. You can learn more about the show on the program's page at healthcarenowradio.com or on our blog at ecgmc.com hud. The U.S. spends more on healthcare per capita than any other country on the planet. So why don't we have superior outcomes? Why haven't the principles of capitalism prevailed? And why do American consumers have so much trouble accessing and paying for healthcare? Each week, Healthcare Upside Down will dive into these and other issues with ECG principal, Dr. Nick, and guest panelists as they discuss the upsides and downsides of healthcare in the U.S. and how to make the system work for everyone. And we end with your better pill to swallow, the conclusion to today's episode with insights on challenges and changes that improve healthcare. Now here's your host, Dr. Nick. The medical education system has not changed much in the last 30 years. How do I know this? Well, I went through the system, and recently I've watched my daughter go through the system as well. Aside from adding a truckload more content to learn, the general approach of putting a funnel on the top of your head and then pouring information in and asking you to memorize it is the same. Much more detail to memorize and many more facts for sure. While the Krebs cycle has not changed, our understanding of it and the level of detail of each individual step and the various other factors that play a role has expanded, adding new knowledge and insights into the human body and the various pathways. In history, the process of teaching most efficiently was established by gathering groups of individuals together with an expert who would then dispense information to this large group. In fact, this is the way the majority of education continues to be dispensed in schools and colleges. Medical students then progress through their basic sciences and foundational learning, diving deep into biochemistry, physiology and anatomy, gaining detailed knowledge of the working of the human body at a cellular and now genomic and proteomic level. As they progress, they enter the clinical area where they participate in inpatient hospital care learning by observing and participating with the different experts and clinical teams as they treat the steady procession of patients seeking healthcare. And then, having completed the necessary elements of coursework and passed exams, they apply for the next stage of their career, the so-called MATCH, or more formally, the National Resident Matching Programme. Taking place sometime in March each year, the process takes all applicants who have completed the necessary elements of their medical education and who will qualify as a doctor of medicine in the coming weeks and matches them to the available job opportunities around the country. You might catch some of the excitement in the social channels as people have matched parties and celebrate individual success. But all this is tinged with some unhappiness as not everyone gets to go to the program they want and in some cases don't match at all. Imagine spending the better part of eight to ten years of your life working hard, giving up many other things to focus on studying and working to get through the various hurdles to become a doctor only to find yourself without a place to go and practice medicine. This problem has been getting worse each and every year, adding more stress and uncertainty to a group that has already experienced a loss in their path to becoming a doctor. Join me on the Healthcare Upside Down show as I talk with Dr. Brian Carmody. He's a pediatric nephrologist, an associate professor of pediatrics at the Eastern Virginia Medical School, and an associate residency program director who teaches preclinical curriculums. 
Hi, Brian. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. So you're an expert in the medical educational system. You've got a, a deep background both in actually delivering medical education, but also the next phase of what is the development of our next generation of doctors, which is the residency program. My sense of this is that medical education hasn't changed in the last hundred years. Is that right? Well, I guess it depends on what, what sort of scale you look at medical education. I mean, in some sense, I mean, medical school itself, the general structure of that has been the same for, for over a hundred years. I mean, since the, uh, since the Flexner report in 1910, you know, we've had a four-year medical education, um, you know, program where students come and they spend the the first part in the classroom learning basic sciences and then take a first-level licensing exam and then go off and do clinical rotations and then, you know, finish their education and go off to residency training. And that, that sort of general four-year structure has been constant. But I think if you examine what medical school looks like today compared to previous eras, I mean, I think there are significant differences. I mean, if... Um, um, you know, if you haven't been in a medical school lately, I mean, you may be surprised to see that most students are not in class. You know, um, when I when I lecture to um, the class at the school where I teach, I may have I probably have about 25 or 30 students out of the 150 person class that attend my lectures. And, and my lectures, I, I, I'll, I'll toot my own horn, are better attended than uh, most. So <laughs> most students these days prefer to receive their education, uh, their, pre their preclinical education from online resources. And um, so, you know, that would be a, a big change compared to previous eras. So, I, I, I mean, just for people's clarity, I think it's important to note that it's not that they're not learning that, they're actually doing it in their, the privacy of their own home. They're sort of accessing, are they accessing you? So are you delivering that content online as well or are they finding it from other places? Usually I would say other places. So, um, you know, I think the best way to look at this is, is that, um, um, you know, a hundred years ago, um, a, a lecture based educational system that was probably as efficient as you could do it. You know, I mean, the alternative to having an expert teach you about what they have expertise in would be to fend for your own in the library, you know, and, and root through all the dusty tomes and try to figure things out on your own. And that's just not really efficient or, or practical, you know, hearing it from the mouths of the masters, that was the, that was the best way to learn medicine, you know, hundred years ago. Um, these days, um, the most efficient way I think is, is to learn the preclinical, um, you know, medicine, all the basic science that's required for first level licensing exams. It's to use third party resources. It's to use um, companies that, um, you know, that, that sell their own educational content and it's content that's um, particularly designed to be as streamlined and um, easy to recall as possible. And um, so students gravitate to it because it's, it's more efficient and in many ways, to be, to be frank, it's better. So I, let, let's talk a little bit about how much has changed. I mean, I, I think over the course of 100 years, lots of things have changed you know, certainly our understanding of disease, we've improved. As you think about those core sciences, it has, has the content that people are learning changed sufficiently to sort of warrant ongoing, what I would say is annual updates to that? Or is it 
relatively minor in terms of that sort of basic science understanding that provides the foundation to medical students then going on to clinical work? I think certain portions of the clinical work, I mean, are things that are the preclinical sciences are things that we've had figured out for a while. I mean, um, you know, much of the pathology and physiology is, is sort of fundamental things that doctors have understood for a while. But, um, but you know, obviously there's a, a, a broad and ever-expanding amount of, uh, you know, knowledge that, that's taught today that would have been unknown even, you know, even 20 years ago. I, and if you think about that, you know, if I was to sort of assess it as an external uh, consumer of this content as, as you know, a, a preclinical medical student going through uh, the, the experience and then, uh, you know, subsequently, the big change to me is the volume. We've added much more content that's required of these individuals. Is that true? Again, I think it depends on how you define it. I mean, if you go back and look at the Flexner report, which of course was the, the you know, um, assessment of, of American medical schools in the early 1900s, um, Flexner carefully catalogs exactly what each school was doing. And, um, and many schools were spending, you know, thousands of hours, for example, studying anatomy. And that's just impractical and, uh, you know, not unwise to try to spend that amount of time today. You know, the amount of anatomy that's covered is undoubtedly less today than it was in that era. But um, in addition to that, of course, we've got, you know, we've got, uh, you know, molecular pharmacology, we've got genetics, and we've got things that are important and, and meaningful for physicians to understand, but that were unknown in previous eras. So I, I, I think if I interpret that, there's, let's say, similar amounts of data, but just a shift in terms of where the focus is, it's certainly in terms of the preclinical. Now we move into the clinical space, obviously huge expansions of understanding, but still the same principles of clinical rotation, you know, in the primary areas, we still do very similar sort of activities to how I recall it. You go, you experience it, you're part of the, the, the team or the firm, as we called it. Um, is, is that still the predominant way? And a, People must be attending that. That's not a virtual experience. Right, right. So clinical rotations carry on, you know, as they have in the past, um, you know, with a little bit of disruption for, you know, COVID-19 when some of that got curtailed and, and we had to come up with ways to do virtual rotations and things like that. Um, you know, but even then, I think, um, you know, the clinical rotations, um, I think you could argue that they're a, not as good of an approximation of actual medical care delivery as they were in the past, insofar as, um, you know, these days, most patients receive their care as outpatients. And yet the training that medical students and residents receive is heavily slanted toward inpatient care, um, you know, because that's uh, an efficient way of doing it. And, you know, historically, that's, uh, you know, that's the model that we, you know, are sort of building upon. So as, as you think about this, um, and specifically, you know, when I think about the training and the education, it reminds me a lot of driving a car. You, you get your license, but really you don't know how to drive a car beyond the sort of basics. And much of your learning takes place with that license that you now have. And, you know, in different countries, there's a, you know, some limits placed on people that are 
they're licensed, but they're not, they're inexperienced. Similar kind of activity in healthcare. And in fact, we have this residency program, which is like the next step, but it's disconnected from the medical school experience. And I think even for people not in healthcare and in medicine, they've probably heard of the match because there's a big deal about this, you know, made online and, you know, people have uh, celebrations, uh, but it's not working terribly well. What's going on there? Yeah, I guess there's a, a couple of things I could I could comment on from um, from all of that. I mean, uh, I think your point about the discontinuity is is a is a very important one for people to consider. Um, you know, medical school predates residency training. You know, residency training until uh, you know until 80 years ago was was largely or, or for many physicians was sort of an optional thing. You know, you could finish your medical school and for much of the, you know, the time that we've had medical schools in this country, you could finish your medical school education one day and, and begin gainful medical practice the next. And as time has gone by, there have been licensure requirements to do at least an internship and then, um, you know, board certification bodies in the various specialties that require a full residency in order to sit for their specialty exams. Um, but but the, the result of that is that we have two systems that in theory are, are trying to, to achieve the same end. They're trying to produce physicians who are capable of caring for, for patients. And yet those two systems are not always pulling in the same direction. You know, medical school is run by universities and they have their set of incentives and residency education is, is run by and dominated by hospitals. Um, and, and they have a separate set of incentives, you know, and um, so the, the connection between medical school and residency is the match. And, um, you know, that's the process through which um, students are assigned to their first job rather than accepting or declining an offer as you might in you know, some other industry. Um, and you're right, I spend a good bit of time talking about what I perceive as problems in the match. And, and most of it really relates to the fact that um, from my standpoint, we have a, a sort of an arms race for medical students to get into the uh, you know the most prestigious or selective residencies or specialties, and um, it doesn't. In many ways, it, it it runs at cross purposes with what we're trying to accomplish in, in medical school. It's um you know it's a, a never ending sort of battle of one upsmanship. That, that doesn't instill our students with the skills and attributes that we want them to have. And so I have spent a good bit of time sort of trying to get people to think about that. Well, I, and I think the arms race is an excellent um, you know, analogy of this. You, you've got ongoing competitiveness. And I think that's in part because the people that end up being recruited into medical school are, in, in my view, the ultimate of competitive players. They're at the peak of most of their individual and then they all come together and you're just, it's like plutonium. When you put a lot of it together, you've got a lot of, lot of uh, energy, should we say. Um, and, you know, we've struggled with that. We see this discrepancy. And as an outsider, you look in and say, there's got to be a mismatch. We don't have enough spots. Um, but that's not entirely true. What is going on in this match process that is failing our, our to be doctors? Yeah, so um, so in the match, I mean, each year, well, we can use 2022 as an example because I, I, I happen to have those, those figures sort of in my head from recent things. So, um, 
you know, we had, I think, about 45,000 first year um, residency positions available offered in the match. And, um, and I think we had in the neighborhood of 25 or actually, I think we had maybe 20,000 U.S. medical school graduates from MD schools and maybe another 7,000 from USDO schools. So in terms of, of raw number of positions, you know, we've got enough residency positions for each medical graduate to find one. Yet in practice, about, you know, 7 to 10% of U.S. MD and DO students go unmatched. They don't find a residency position in a sort of first go round. So, um, um, now, of course, there's other applicants, you know, we are fortunate in that we have, um, you know, we attract graduates from international medical schools who, who want to do residency training and practice in the United States. And so when you take all comers, there's a, a, a surplus of applicants to the number of positions, but there's certainly more than enough positions for all USMD and DO graduates. So, you know, on Twitter last week, I, I, I noted that we had um, uh, a little over 900 um unfilled positions in family medicine and internal medicine, categorical internal medicine positions. So 900 unfilled positions in those two specialties. And we had 850 unmatched US MD seniors in orthopedics, otolaryngology, plastic surgery, neurosurgery, and dermatology. So the problem isn't that we don't have enough positions, it's that all residency positions are not equally attractive to, you know, to all applicants. And those that are attractive to one applicant tend to be attractive to other applicants. And so at every level of the match for each applicant type and sort of level of competitiveness, um, the match itself becomes competitive, whether you're talking about community internal medicine programs, which may be very competitive for certain international medical graduates to, uh, you know, academic dermatology positions that may be sort of the, the apex of competition for USMD students. So, I, you know, some surprising data points in there, first of all, that, you know, widely available, because I think externally you would look at this, certainly based on some of the social media and think, well, you know, we, we just have a mismatch, but that's not the case. It's actually more specific. And the mismatch in this particular instance seems to be with a specialty related, you know, to, um, as, as you described it, family medicine, internal medicine, why is that? Why is it? Is it just about the institutions and the location? It, what, what's what's stopping people from applying to these openings? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the first and most obvious thing to, to comment on, which almost doesn't need any comment, but I will, is that, uh, you know, there's there's, of course, an earnings difference among these specialties. And so um, um, you can and people have if you plot the competitiveness of a specialty using any number of metrics, you know, the average USMLE score or the um, percent of graduates that um, are, are from USMD schools or whatever, you can you can do a linear regression and show that those things correlate with the um, you know expected compensation by those specialties. So you know I think that's the um, the first thing. I think the second thing that's a little bit more subtle and sort of harder to put numbers on is that. Um, um, I mean, as you said, I mean, many people who um, who come to medical school, they're they're sort of winners. You know, they um, they they may be very altruistic, but they also are sort of the victors in a grand competition that's gone back years and years. And um, um, I I perceive in my discussions with medical students that there's often a lot of value in matching to a competitive specialty or at a competitive program, even if that doesn't really impact. Um, certain things about your career plans. I think there's sort of an, 
I, I think of it as sort of an instant CV. You know, if you see someone, um, a physician, you can't uh, brag about what their, they, they may not be able to brag about what their USMLE step one score is. But if you see them and you say, oh, that person's a, an interventional cardiologist, well, then there's sort of an instant CV that's associated with that. You know, they must have been the best of the best or they couldn't have achieved such a lofty position. And I think that that is, um, I think that that's also a, a driver of this as well. Although I think you could make a, a cogent argument that that's um, maybe largely attributed to the financial rewards as well. Yeah, so that creates a problem because I think, as you and I both know, we need an awful lot more in the way of internal medicine, family practice in particular, all of the chronic diseases. We're missing all of that. How do we go about fixing this? What is it that needs? I mean, there's a part of me that says, well, just increase the salaries, but it's it can't be as simple as that. And even if it is, it's, that's probably not a realistic answer. Yeah, well, I think that there's, uh, I mean, one problem is that we don't have um, any sort of top-down mechanism for determining the number and nature of residency positions that are offered. I mean, in theory, all of our residency programs, we should be training the right numbers of physicians to care for our population. But there's no authority that sits down and says, oh, we need this many urologists, we need this many this, you know, and, and divvies it up. We sort of let individual hospitals make their own decisions about whether to offer a position or not. And we hope it all works out. Um, but I think there are some, some levers that can be used. I mean, obviously, um, many medical uh, or, or the bulk of residency funding comes from the federal government, comes from the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And so, you know, there is a powerful lever to, um, to put those dollars toward funding programs that, um, that would be perceived to be filling more of a need, you know? And um, instead we have sort of a, a complicated and antiquated system that's the result of many political compromises about how residency programs are funded. And it's, it's illogical and it wouldn't be the, the system that any person would devise if they were building something from ground up. Yeah, so I, I, I you know, great point. A lot of this is is ultimately funded, and obviously the cost of medical education weighs heavy on many of these individuals. And you know the need to sort of resolve that is part of the driver, as well as obviously the competitive spirit. Um, the, this is an ongoing problem. I mean, I, I think you've tracked this. I, I don't know how long, but I'm I'm pretty sure that your tracking of that uh, arms race is essentially, is it a straight line or is it even exponential in terms of the competitiveness? It seems like we're not improving things. Is there anything that's on the horizon that might start to change this so that we can return to a more normal approach and start to see better distribution of candidates across the specialties? Well, I think, um, I, I guess the thing I would say um, um, is not all competition is necessarily bad. I mean, it's not that um, competition um, I mean, we, we want our best and brightest to push themselves and do the best they can do. But, but I think we want them to do that in a way that leaves them better off for having participated in that competition. And, and you could imagine assigning residency positions using, um, you know, you could use a lottery. That might be fair, but it wouldn't, um, it wouldn't encourage people to be their best. Or you could use something like, uh, you know, USMLE scores, which would encourage people to, to distinguish themselves in a certain way. But really, I think what we want, the holy grail, is that we want people, we want to recognize the competencies that we really care about and encourage our, our students to aspire to those. 
And then the winners win and the people who don't win are still left better off for having participated in that competition. Brian, thanks very much for joining me. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So the raw numbers of the match tell a different story. As Brian explains, we actually have sufficient spots for all of our next generation of doctors to find opportunities and start their careers in medicine. But thanks to the highly competitive nature of medicine and the extraordinarily challenging path, the people that do make it through are naturally all high achievers who seek what they consider and what society indicates are the most competitive positions and roles. Your better pill to swallow is to start changing the conversation and move away from the continued comparisons of specialties and contributions based on status and income and focus on the competencies and values that we seek from our physicians and the services that we need to deliver to our community. Thanks for joining me, your host, Dr. Nick, on this week's edition of Healthcare Upside Down. Until next week, keep solving the business of healthcare as if your life depended on it, as one day soon, it will. That's all the time we have for today. You can find all of our episodes on your favorite listening platform by searching for Healthcare Now Radio. Also, check out our blog at ecgmc.com slash hud for summaries and commentary from each episode. Follow our show's social hashtag, HCUpsideDown. And join us each week as we work to solve the business of healthcare for everyone.